Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Dr. Timmy, welcome back to the podcast. We're so glad to have you here. For those who are tuning in for the first time to a Dr. Timmy episode, most importantly, he is my dad. This is Sophie speaking, but he is also an obstetrician, gynecologist and fertility specialist. And we get him on here to answer the questions that are well above my scope of knowledge, only slightly above James (laughs) because she is a self-proclaimed doctor herself. So he answers the hard-hitting questions about pregnancy and birth. And thank you for being here again. I've got fantastic news, girls. What? You can add something to my introduction because I now, thanks to Isabel last night, have 500 followers. Oh, so he's an influencer too. Congratulations. I've moved up in the world. I'm an influencer. Next time I come on the show, you'll need to provide me with a trailer. And a list of requirements, Pepsi Max, Red Smarties. <laughs> I'm just wondering how many followers you need to get a K. You're 25K. I want to be 0.5K. I think you got to get to 10K first, Timmy. Oh, I'm nearly there. It's only 1,500 to go. Yeah, baby steps, Timmy. But speaking of baby, today we are talking all things first trimester. That glorious time in a lot of women's lives, not. So we've had some questions sent in by our followers and listeners and they want them answered by you. Mm -hmm. I hope that Jade and I can get through this episode (laughs) okay because, to be honest, it was for both of us, you three times and me twice, pretty shit times in our lives. So let's get started. Isn't that just so counterintuitive? You you would think that nature would make you feel better than you've ever felt before when you're pregnant as a way of trying to sort of propagate the species, but instead it makes you feel absolutely terrible. What a silly, silly invention. I've always said evolutionarily we're not great at reproducing. Like you think they would make birth a bit easier. For a lot of people you would think you would make conceiving a bit easier you think you would make pregnancy a bit easier (laughs) I think it's trying to keep the human race down a bit yeah Yeah. first question Timmy you've just found out you're pregnant what's next Timmy's just found out (laughs) (laughs) I've got a lot of questions but go I'm I'm thrilled I guess there's a, a number of ways that you'd find out you're pregnant some people might be undergoing infertility treatment or or tracking their cycle and intending to be pregnant and others would find out they're pregnant when they weren't even planning to be pregnant but i guess what next is is to is to make an appointment with a doctor to commence the first trimester management of your pregnancy and establish accurate dates for how many weeks pregnant you are and when you're due and to be offered the sort of routine screening that occurs in early pregnancy. And, of course, for a lot of women, their first part of their pregnancy 
would be their first interaction with a doctor on any sort of serious level. They may have gone to see a doctor along the way with a cold or flu or tonsillitis or something like that, but pregnancy might be for many their first ever interaction with the medical profession. And so basically as soon as you find out, you should be booking an appointment with your GP? Yeah, well, have a look at, at, at when your last period was, if you know. And remember, at the time of the first doctor's visit, a lot of women arrive at the doctor's visit and really having done nothing more than weed on a stick. And indeed, a lot of people come along to me as a specialist and, and they're sort of all, almost feeling like they're allegedly pregnant because they've never had any actual confirmation that they're pregnant apart from not having a period or perhaps having early pregnancy symptoms. So it's great if at a first visit to an obstetrician you can have an ultrasound and actually see the pregnancy and see a heartbeat and confirm that this this weighing on a stick and the correct alignment of lines is actually something true. And a lot of women don't feel like urine pregnancy tests are is a legitimate test, I think, because you can do it at home, you just sitting on the toilet and all of a sudden you go from, okay, I, I didn't think I was pregnant a second ago to being pregnant. Is it accurate or should you not really believe you're pregnant until you've had a blood test or an ultrasound? No, no. Most women would never have a blood test to confirm their pregnancy unless it was in the context of fertility treatment. A urinary HCG level is extremely accurate. It can pick up pregnancy before you've even missed a period and is an wow. extremely reliable test. The the beta subunit of the HCG hormone is, you know, specifically to pregnancy, and that's why it's called a beta HCG, and therefore the only reason you'd have beta HCG circulating in your bloodstream would be that you're pregnant, and then it's excreted in urine, and if you did your earliest possible weighing on a stick and then did a blood test that day, you might have a pregnancy hormone level that's extremely low, but it'll still be positive on your HCG urinary pregnancy test. And how does one choose between public and private care? Well, I guess you may make that choice prior to getting pregnant and therefore make sure that you have private health insurance that will cover you for pregnancy. And for some people, having private care in obstetrics is a very important thing to them. It's a very sort of uh, like high on their list of priorities that their pregnancy would be cared for privately and delivered in a private hospital. And that would be, you know, in a young woman, that might be the only reason she really has private health insurance so that she would plan to get pregnant and plan by getting private health insurance in advance even perhaps know the doctor that she wishes to go to and the hospital she wishes to deliver at, whereas somebody might find out they're pregnant when they weren't planning to be pregnant or they didn't have private health insurance. And, of course, private health insurance is very expensive now, so they might not have the choice to go privately. And then I guess the third group are those who pay to go privately despite not having private health insurance and that's becoming increasingly popular due to the expense of private health insurance. I will say, because I think a lot of people get tripped up by this, but having private health insurance doesn't mean that you're necessarily covered mm. for obstetrics. And most private health funds will require you to have had it had obstetric cover for 12 months prior to having your baby. So I guess, yeah. you know, most 
the time you're pregnant for nine months. So if you got it three months before, you should be safe. But I mean, if you had a preemie baby or something, you wouldn't be. So it is one of those things that you kind of have to plan out and have 12 months before your baby is due. And also another thing, even if you do have private health insurance with obstetric cover, there is generally still an out-of-pocket expense of multiple thousands of dollars to see an obstetrician. I thought that with the the healthcare for pregnancy and birth, you actually have to have it before you're pregnant. Well, most of the time it's, well, you do because it would, you'd have to have had it for at least three months before you're pregnant. And I guess to be safe, even longer than that. So as soon as you're thinking, if you have private healthcare and you're thinking, oh, you know, I might get pregnant one day in the next few years, pop it on your healthcare. I mean, yeah, if you can afford it. Yeah. And I guess going through the pros and cons of each, because I think some people are like, how does the care differ? When you go private, you pick your obstetrician, you generally pick what hospital you're delivering at, or your obstetrician may only deliver at one hospital. You get to know him or her throughout the whole pregnancy and then hope that they're there when you deliver. I guess if you delivered on the weekend or when they're away, they still may not be. You generally get like a private room your partner can generally stay whereas in public you well, the, you generally are delivered by whoever's there on the day so with public you have a midwife system of different midwives throughout the the pregnancy term and then when you are ready to give birth you will go to the public hospital yeah you don't have an option of a room i found that i had a really good experience with the public system yeah they they really looked after me and I had private health care. I didn't have pregnancy, but I chose to do public and it was great. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think something that's becoming more and more popular nowadays, if you're low risk is in a lot of public hospitals, you can be a part of the midwifery group practice scheme. So if you're low risk, you generally get to know one or two midwives throughout your pregnancy. And then basically, I'm pretty sure they're called in when you deliver. So you still have that continuity of care, but it's not a private obstetrician. Another thing about having a private obstetrician is that if you have questions or concerns during your pregnancy, you do have a a point of reference, a person you can call Mm. and ask questions and and make appointments perhaps earlier than your next appointment is due. So if you were in this first trimester we're discussing today and you had bleeding or pain or discharge or loss of pregnancy symptoms, it's quite simple to know who you're going to call and who's going to end up seeing you. Whereas in the public system, sometimes you might not have that direct reference to somebody who's specifically looking after you. Yeah, totally. So what can a woman expect to be tested for? or What kind of scans can they expect in their first trimester? The tests at the first visit would include blood tests. And the blood tests would depend a little bit on whether the person had had a pregnancy before or had had blood tests recently, perhaps as part of investigation of their fertility. But just say this is this lady's first visit to the doctor for anything to do with pregnancy. We would, of course, check her blood group and a full blood examination to check that she's not anemic or doesn't have any abnormalities of her platelet count. We'd check her thyroid function. We'd check serology it's called, which is looking for immunity or previous exposure to various illnesses. So that serology would include hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV, 
syphilis, your chickenpox immunity, your rubella immunity, and your parvovirus or slap cheek immunity. And we would also do a test called a midstream urine test because 4% of women in early pregnancy will have a urinary tract infection without having any symptoms of urinary tract infection. And it's important that that's treated because it can go on to become a more serious infection. And then much more specifically to pregnancy, your doctor may have an ultrasound machine in his rooms. A lot of private obstetricians would and would therefore be able to check with the ultrasound machine if there's one pregnancy or more, if there's pregnancy appears to be in the right place and if the pregnancy has a heartbeat and also approximately how many weeks the pregnancy looks because the next step of investigations in early pregnancy will be blood tests looking for the risk of Down syndrome. You have the choice to have a test which looks at the genetic screen of the baby. As freaky as it sounds, there is actually baby DNA in your circulation as a pregnant woman at 10 weeks and they're able to do a blood test on on you, the pregnant woman, not the baby, and find that DNA and then through a very complex scientific technique called amplification, they're able to look at the DNA and you know restructure it to see if there's any extra or missing chromosomes. And as you know, Down syndrome is an extra chromosome 21. And also look at the sex chromosomes. So you get the result five days later. So as early as 11 weeks, you can have your gender uh, reveal party and either set a bushfire or perhaps kill someone at your gender reveal. But that's a fairly new phenomenon that I was unfamiliar with until recent years. But you will find out the sex. And sometimes people ask me, why is it all about Down syndrome? Why why is this such an important one on that early test? And it's often just referred to as the Down syndrome test. Well, the reason for that is that of the chromosomes, excluding the sex chromosomes, but of the other pairs of chromosomes, the only extra chromosome that's compatible with a living baby is an extra chromosome 21. And then the only chromosome extra that's compatible with a pregnancy progressing quite a long way but not compatible with a living baby is chromosomes 13 and 18. So it specifically looks at those three sets of chromosomes and the sex chromosomes because they're the important ones. There's no such thing as a baby with an extra chromosome 20 or an extra chromosome 22. It's, it's those specific chromosomes that are compatible with an ongoing pregnancy. And as you know, with, with Down syndrome or trisomy 21 can be compatible with a living baby that is born with Down syndrome. So if you had a baby that had an extra chromosome 20 or 22, for example, you would assume that that would end in an early miscarriage. Yeah. So it has now become 
quite routine in my well certainly in my practice so I can't speak for others but whenever I do a curette for a miscarriage I send that off for what's called cytogenetics that's looking at the chromosome makeup so that's 46 chromosomes and two of them are either an x and an x or an x and a y determining the sex when I was a medical student you know I was told that, you know, probably, you know, 10 or 15 or 20% of pregnancies that miscarry have an abnormal carrier type. But in fact, as life goes on and these tests become more available, it's quite clear that the vast majority of pregnancies that miscarry are due to an abnormal chromosomal makeup that's referred to as aneuploidy. And that is the overwhelmingly most common reason for miscarriage. And therefore, that is just simply a way that a pregnancy doesn't continue to grow when it has not got the capacity to be a normal pregnancy. And it also explains the reason why women, as they get older, have a higher miscarriage rate because they have a much higher rate of producing pregnancies that have an abnormal chromosome makeup with either an extra chromosome, a missing chromosome, or I've even had patients where I've done the genetic screening on the pregnancy after a miscarriage and there's been two extra chromosomes. Right, but they're things that are generally random events that shouldn't have an increased risk of happening again. Only related to age. So if, if you have a miscarriage at 40, so, for example, the miscarriage rate at, say, 25 would only be about one in seven or eight. The mm-hmm. miscarriage rate at 40 would be one in two or three. Wow. So the older you get, the more likely you are to miscarry, not because you've done anything wrong, not because your lining of your uterus isn't favourable or because you're not healthy, simply because you're more likely to produce a pregnancy that has an abnormal chromosomal makeup and therefore hasn't got the potential, sadly, to be a successful pregnancy. There's a lot of confusion often around, you know, due dates Mm. and how far along you are. Is the dating scan in the first trimester or are your period dates more accurate to go off? Uh, The dating scan would be very accurate. I would trust that, you know, obviously if a pregnancy is IVF, you know the gestation of the pregnancy to the hour. You wouldn't let an ultrasound change your mind about that. I think the important thing is to just understand that the further along in the pregnancy you are, the less accurate an ultrasound is at establishing your due date. So if you have a seven-week scan and then the 12-week scans a couple of days different, and then the 20-week scans a couple of days different. You don't keep changing the due date. I find that patients get very frustrated, particularly in public hospital clinics, when every time they go and have a visit, they're told a different date. I think it's important Mm. as early as possible in the pregnancy to lock down on a due date and use that due date because at the end of the day, It's not the due date that we say has no influence on when the pregnancy is going to be delivered and Mm. therefore it's better just to accept that it was more accurate early and stick with your early due date. The reason it's more accurate earlier is that 
babies are in a much narrower range of size the earlier in the pregnancy you are. Yeah. So if you have a seven-week scan, there's there's hardly any variation in the size of the pregnancy, whereas if you had a 40-week scan, the baby could be 2.8 kilos and perfectly healthy and 4.8 kilos and perfectly healthy. So how could you possibly derive a due date on a late scan? The earlier you are, the narrower the range of size. And what are common first trimester symptoms? Why do we experience these symptoms? Please tell us. Yeah, look, it's always been blamed on HCG because that's such a pregnancy-specific hormone. Clearly, pregnancies release a hormone or, or some sort of hormonal change in your body that creates these symptoms. So, like, to start with nausea, there is a, an area in the base of your brain called the chemoreceptor trigger zone, and that's an area of your brain that processes your blood and finds things in your blood that triggers nausea. So, for example, some people, if they have morphine, vomit all the time. Some people will feel nauseated from certain antibiotics. Any medication could cause nausea. So obviously when that medication floats past that part of the brain, in that specific person it triggers a nausea response. So what causes nausea in pregnancy is clearly you respond to the changes of pregnancy by producing nausea. But but the old-fashioned idea that, you know, if you have twins, you'll be more nauseated because you have more HCG and things like that doesn't really stand the test of, of, you know, reality. And it's interesting that when you look at nausea in pregnancy and vomiting in pregnancy, and then if you go to its extreme, as you know, it's called hyperemesis gravidarum, and that's what our beautiful duchess was hospitalised in all three of her pregnancies for. He's not talking about you as the Duchess. <laughs> I was like, that's so kind of you, Timmy. But it's interesting that hyperemesis gravidarum is very different like on, on social and demographic levels. So, for example, hyperemesis is much more common in people from high socioeconomic groups from certain geographical places and some races, like some cultures, it doesn't exist at all. So I'm not suggesting for a moment it is it is people who have it are being sort of um, high-class whinging. What I'm saying is that it just does seem to have a different effect on different cultures. And then there are lots of other symptoms, like there's symptoms to do with your appetite, there's symptoms to do with, you know, having sore breasts, passing urine frequently, headaches, aversion to certain foods. There's a lot of symptoms in that early pregnancy. It's a fun time. It's a real time. When did your first symptoms begin? Six weeks. Six weeks on the dot with all three pregnancies. It started with really severe headaches and vomiting and it was vomiting every two hours. It was just ended up being bile because I just couldn't mm. keep anything down. And all down. three of them as bad as the last. So they were um, – it actually got worse every time I was pregnant but the last pregnancy, the, um, the sickness actually stopped at about 
I think it was 16 weeks mm-hmm. and the last two went all the way to yeah. 38 weeks. Yeah, with Poppy, I knew I was pregnant the day I was due to have my period because I woke up feeling sick. I think I vomited. So that would have been like what's classed as four weeks. Mm. And I was so sick with her until 30 weeks. And then Goldie, I was sick before my pregnancy test was coming up positive my pregnancy test didn't come up positive until about a week after my period was due and it was so weird because I felt sick and I didn't have my period and I was like I feel so pregnant and I remember I even went down to Sydney for fashion week with my friend Tiff who owns a store and I was like well I better do a pregnancy another pregnancy test before I go because like we're going to be going out and stuff came up negative so I was like oh gosh why am I so tired feeling so sick and then it wasn't until I came back and I did another one that it came up positive. Why do you think that happened? Oh, I'm, it would be interesting to know how the timing of the estimation of the due date and how many weeks you are tied in with. You may have had some expired HCG sticks there in your in your cupboard from your previous pregnancy, but. It is interesting you talked about how you just felt that you knew you were pregnant because one phenomenon I find quite common at my practice is that when a lady has a a miscarriage, you know, obviously they're very distressed and they're very concerned about their next pregnancy. And so often if they've required a curette for the miscarriage, you say to them, look, when you get pregnant again, don't hesitate to contact my rooms and we'll organise an early scan for you and we'll make sure everything's okay. And it's quite common for them to make the phone call and say, listen, I don't need a scan, I don't need a blood (laughs) test, I'm definitely better this time, I'm I'm definitely pregnant, I feel completely different. So, Sophie, no doubt you were pregnant, no doubt you you had correct pregnancy symptoms and you probably didn't even need the confirmation of any form of test to let you know you were pregnant. Can I just add, I did leave one thing out of the testing in the first visit, which we mm-hmm. did touch on in the previous podcast where we talked about preparing for pregnancy. And I'll say that word specifically because there is a test called the prepare, which checks your carrier status. That's the carrier status of the woman who is pregnant or planning to get pregnant, looking at, at whether she carries the gene for cystic fibrosis spinal muscular atrophy or fragile X. Now, you only need to be tested for that once. And if you are positive, then your partner needs to be tested because if only one of you is positive, they are, all three of them, recessive conditions. It's a little more complicated with fragile X, but I won't go into that. Because they are recessive conditions, For example, with cystic fibrosis, if you were a carrier, don't panic because there's a 1 in 25 chance of being a carrier. You would then check your husband to see if he's a carrier. Now, as we discussed in the the previous podcast, that's the sort of thing that's great to do before you get pregnant so you know you've got that sorted out. But it's part of our requirements at the first pregnancy visit to ask a patient and at least offer them that screening. Not all patients will take up on the screening, but a cystic fibrosis is the most common autosomal recessive condition in the community and 1 in 25 people are carriers and therefore, it, you know, cystic fibrosis is a lifelong very difficult condition to treat and therefore it is well worth testing for if you want to go down that line. 
Sorry, we'll get back to the symptoms. Yeah, are some symptoms worse in boys than girls? And does this mean our partners? (laughs) (laughs) No, can I just say that if our husbands had hyperemesis, I assure you it would be even worse than ours. (laughs) But I think the person meant if you're pregnant with a boy or a girl, are any of the symptoms worse in one or the other? No, definitely not. And you described that your pregnancy with Goldie was quite a bit different to your pregnancy with Poppy. Unfortunately, your your yours wasn't very different. You were sick all the way. But no, there's there's no difference that an X or a Y chromosome can make. There's no difference in HCG levels. You don't feel different with a boy or a girl. I I don't want to sound like a nasty male cynic, but it, it it is a fact that it doesn't make any difference and even twins don't make a very big difference you know some people feel sick as you did Sophie and I'll I'll never forget that your greatest joy when you used to see me during your pregnancy with Poppy was when I'd come up to visit with like 40s offering to give you and you know some dads would bring flowers or a gift but I'd bring you a whole lot of packets as offering to take. Lifesaver. They're also a lifesaver if you're severely hungover too. I know. I'd actually wouldn't mind. When you come up, can you just hand me some Zofran? Would you like me to just go through some tactics, though, for hyperemesis or, or, or for nausea and pregnancy? It's as though you have the questions in front of you, Timmy, because that was leading on to our next one, ways to manage it, and then after that we can talk about anti-nausea medications. Yeah, so I'd like to separate that into three different categories. I think it's tactical and then non-pharmaceutical treatment, then pharmaceutical treatment. So I don't think tactical should ever be underestimated. I've found that I've had a lot of sex success. (laughs) No wonder I've got 500 followers. Please cut that out, Sophie. I'll be down to 250 followers by the end of this podcast. I find that it's really helpful to give people some tactics for how to manage uh, nausea in pregnancy. So number one is if you have a good time in the day, try and eat as much as you can in that time of the day. So even though it's referred to as morning sickness, some people have evening sickness, some people have midday sickness, and some people feel all day sick all day. But if you have a part of the day where you feel better, for example, in the morning, then eat as much as you can at that Mm. time. The second thing is, this is not a time to be trying to eat nutritious food. This is a time where you're just eating to survive, not to be nutritionally balanced or not gain weight or anything like that. So that if you feel like eating particularly salty or doughy foods like buns, donuts, fries, schnitzels, then you eat them. Breakfast, lunch or dinner, just have whatever you feel like eating. The other thing that's important is to not smell food while it's being cooked. So either ask someone else to cook the food for you or cook the food in one part of the day but with a plan of eating it at another part of the day. The other thing I get people to do is to carry a drink flask with them at all times and a couple of tactics with drinking is by having the flask with you all the time, you're just sipping it. So it's a little bit like having a drip and put different flavoured drinks in it every time you refill it and have it in a vessel where you can smell it 
while you're drinking it. Because if just say you decide you're going to use, you know, hydrolyte or something like that, it'll reach the point where if you're having that in a glass, just the smell of it in the glass will make you feel sick. So what you do is you might put hydrolyte in, but you might put some raspberry cordial in it or something like that. And then the next time you have it, you might have soda water. And then the next time you have it, you might have lemonade or something like that. Have a different drink every time and have it out of a vessel where you can't smell it. And also carry with you some food like crackers or crisps or something like that, that you can just have a little bit of a, an eat of at any time of the day or not. And avoid acidic fruit foods like fruit and fruit juices because they're only going to increase the amount of acid in your stomach and potentially that acid regurgitation that leads to nausea. And, of course, if you have an aversion to a particular food, like Sophie's mum, the moment she, she, you know, she was due for her pregnancy test, couldn't drink coffee. So, like, if you have an aversion to a certain food, just avoid it, obviously. I never felt the coffee diversion. However, diversion. Yeah, aversion. Aversion. <laughs> however, I, do, I did find that the only things I loved to have to eat was, like, dry carbs and, like, I wanted hot dogs and burgers and then I'd yeah. never want burgers like a little bit later on. But I've got to tell you, the one thing to vomit up that is absolutely horrendous on your throat is bread. It is a thick, it ends up being like a thick ball, um, ball of dough. Yeah. And it's so <laughs> thick coming out of your throat. You're like, why did I do this? But it's so good when oh, it's going it's so down. Good. I loved chicken schnitzels because I was mm. like, at least maybe I'm getting some protein That's from the great. chicken. And then the crumb was just, however, I wouldn't have been able to prepare the raw chicken. Mm. But to the point that we nicknamed Poppy Schnitty when I was pregnant with her because <laughs> I would have, like, I would have demolished hundreds of chicken schnitzels while I was pregnant with her and then Goldie was ham and cheese croissants because it was a mix of salty buttery carby goodness yeah yeah it always seems to involve salt and sort of carbs is is the thing that that people like and then the second level I I was mentioning was sort of non-pharmacological interventions so that would include things like um um hypnotherapy acupuncture you know uh, meditation things like that that can that can really in some specific cases be very helpful even some osteopaths and chiropractors recommend treatment for hyperemesis so you may reach a point where where you're you're on the verge of needing admission to hospital for intravenous fluids so there's no harm in trying one of these non non-interventional type of treatments to see if it works for you. And then obviously there's a range of of tablets you can take, starting with the most natural of them being things like vitamin B6 and ginger. And some of the health food companies have combination like uh, morning sickness pills that are a combination of those two, as well as pregnancy multivitamins. Do be careful if you're taking something like Elevit which is a very big tablet and contains iron, it can often make you feel quite nauseated. So if you're feeling really nauseated in the first trimester, just go and buy some plain folate tablets 
the multivitamins are over a dollar a day, but you'll find that you can get 200 folate tablets for about $5. And so you could just take them until you're 12 weeks and you're feeling a bit better and then go back to your pregnancy multivitamin. Then we move up to more specific anti-nausea tablets like Maxilon. I don't find that particularly effective, but it, it, it certainly could be considered as a next step. And then, of course, another common next step is Zofran or Ondansetron, and that's available as a tablet, which you can break into pieces and take a, a small dose regularly during the day or into a wafer. The advantage of the wafer being you don't even have to swallow it. You just put it on your tongue. It absorbs uh-huh. into your circulation through your tongue. So if you put that there and it's dissolved and you vomit two minutes later, you haven't lost your tablet. Um, Can I just say? girls' middle names should be Zofran. I'm just putting that out. But with, with Zofran, yeah. like... I guess when we were saying and laughing, when people have a hangover, they sometimes sneakily have that because it cures it. When you have hyperemesis so bad, it actually doesn't even take away your nausea. It just stopped stopped me from vomiting, but I actually continuously felt sick, sick, sick. That's a very common observation. Be careful with Zofran because you're already very prone to constipation in early pregnancy and Zofran does um, often lead to constipation. So you may need to get a laxative to keep your bowels regular during early pregnancy. And then, of course, the next step up from that is hospital admission for intravenous fluids. And that might just be for a few hours, like you don't need to be staying in hospital and sometimes you'll be given a couple of litres or even a few litres of fluid intravenously and perhaps some ondansetron or zofran intravenously. And then the next step is to go on to what's called steroids, which is prednisolone, and that does work extremely well um, and we get really good results with that. So you take prednisolone and then when you're feeling better you gradually reduce the dose down to zero you don't just stop it overnight and in some patients you know it it, it can reach a point where their hyperemesis is so severe and they are just so down about how they're feeling that they even consider termination of the pregnancy So we want to, you know, be able to have plenty of glass to break and buttons to press to try and make these people feel better. And so using steroids, you know, I've done many times with very good results. So there is a a lot of options there and I think you should feel that you should work your way through those options and please don't be afraid to take medication as so many people are in pregnancy afraid to take medication. It's for the benefit of both you and your baby. And just as an anecdote to reassure people, there's very good evidence that hyperemesis is in fact associated with better pregnancy outcomes. So there is not an increased risk of babies with abnormalities, of premature birth, 
or with any um, late pregnancy issues like preeclampsia or diabetes. So don't feel that hyperemesis is setting you up for a complicated pregnancy. In fact, pregnancy outcomes are slightly better in hyperemesis patients. I think it's so important to say that part about I had to take medication with both babies and I think a lot of women fear that they will be judged if they have to take medication while they're pregnant for their nausea and vomiting and you know that people should just suck it up because it's a normal part of pregnancy and what you said then about wanting to terminate I had so many dark and I can say this now and it doesn't make me any less grateful for having had Poppy but I was so sick when I was pregnant with her that there were times especially when people would be like to me oh you must be so excited like Uh, There was times where I was just like, I want to wish this pregnancy away because I honestly feel like I'm dying. Mm. And I'll just say some other tactical things that I found was I had to take the medication basically before I even stood up and got out of bed because if I some days I'd go, oh, I'll just see if today is going to be a better day and I can get away with not using medication. If that cycle of vomiting began even if I took the medication, it didn't stop and I would just feel so awful all day. And I don't know if I should say this or not, and I'll make a decision whether we put this in later, but I actually fell pregnant in between Mia and Billy and they're already 18, 16 months apart. I fell pregnant really early and I was so unwell I couldn't even lift my head off the pillow. I was so unwell. I made the decision to actually terminate that pregnancy because I knew for the sake of our family, I wasn't mentally going to be able to cope and I physically couldn't look after her and my partner was working away and my, my family lived in Melbourne. And I'm not saying this and I don't want people to be like, well, so many people want to have children and, you know, that's something you shouldn't have done. I, you know, I'm all for children. I love children. However, I knew that and I, and it did get me. I was that sick that it made me like I can't I can't feel like this. Yeah. So to go to the you know to genuinely want another baby, you've really got to want one when you have hyperemesis and you know that you're going to feel like that because it is a journey and a half to go through. Like oh, it's yeah. the hospital I think you're visits. You're going to be judged harshly on that decision by people who haven't experienced hyperemesis. Correct. Yeah. You know, when you feel nauseated like that, it, it, it's just so negative psychologically that it should be given absolute attention and should be looked at almost like a mental health crisis if somebody is that sick. The other thing, of course, you can add is an antacid. We used to use Zantac, but that's no longer on the market. So, in other words, use something like Nexium. The idea being that. When you take a tablet like Nexium or when we used to have it Zantac or Cimetidine, it stops your stomach from making the acid. It doesn't absorb the acid. You don't even make it. And so, therefore, that acid reflux in your upper stomach and lower esophagus will be dampened down, which means that when you're moving around or when you have something to eat, you don't get that surge of acid into your lower esophagus, which number one, 
will bring on the urge to vomit, and number two, if it's left untreated, will leave a burn in the lower esophagus that even if you then go on and take correct treatment, that area will have to heal up. And as you said before, you, you can reach the point where you're just vomiting bile or even blood. What's a good indicator that you should probably go into hospital if you have hyperemesis? Yeah. Interesting you sort of mentioned one is that if you reach the point where when you stand up you get dizzy, that's usually referred to as postural hypotension. So that means you're so dehydrated that you can't even maintain your blood pressure to your brain when you stand up. So that's a yeah. very good sign. I, I think intuitively people know that I've just reached the point of no return now. I need I need help. And for some people, are extremely, they are extremely stoic and they would be able to withstand, you know, severe symptoms and battle through them and other people not. But it is amazing how quickly someone will feel better if you oh. just rehydrate them. You just bring them into an emergency department, put, yep. a, put a cannula in, give them two or three litres of fluid and a little bit of antiemetic in that fluid and they'll walk away. Now, that might only last three or four days, but that might be a turning point for them psychologically where in that time they were able to get some food into them and feel a lot better. It was for me. Well, I always felt so silly. Like I always left it too long like and every time I went I was like I should have gone earlier because I felt silly I was like I don't have an illness I'm just pregnant like I just need Mm. to be able to do this and every time I went I thought why didn't I come earlier everyone was happy to see like happy to see you you're the easiest patient they've probably looked after all day Mm. because all they have to do is give you fluids and antiemetics there's not really any like problem solving going on could I just empower all pregnant women out there that if you go into an emergency department with hyperemesis for intravenous fluids, you will be amongst the sort of most worthy 1% mm. of people in that emergency department for the week. So you go in there, you use those resources, you have those fluids, you're doing your best to have a pregnancy and have a healthy pregnancy. You're doing the best you can for your family. If this isn't your first baby, you're more than entitled to go in there and have those fluids. And sometimes when you are that dehydrated because you're vomiting, that makes you feel even worse. So oh, as cool. soon as as soon as you get the salt and you get that hydration through your veins, I yeah. I, I just was like, oh my god, <laughs> I've never felt so good in my life. Yeah. When does it typically stop morning sickness? Usually at the end of the first trimester, so sort of 13 to 14 weeks. So that's around about the time that people would have their 13 to 14-week ultrasound, which is, I guess, you know, dovetails us into the next thing that happens in the first trimester, and that's having your ultrasound. When I was a young obstetrics and gynae resident, the, the major anatomy scan of the baby, because remember we've talked about doing the, the test for the genetics for the Down syndrome as early as 10 weeks. That's relatively new. I mean, Down syndrome testing has gone through a number of phases over the years and a number of timings during the pregnancy, moving backwards from sort of 
20 weeks back down to sort of 16 weeks, back down to 13 weeks, and now at 10 weeks. But at the same time, the resolution of ultrasound has improved so much that whereas the basic anatomy scan of the pregnancy used to be done at 18 to 20 weeks, it's now done at 13 weeks because they can pick up you know, really all, nearly all of the major anatomical abnormalities that earlier. So indeed, it it's changed from the biggest time slot being given to 20-week ultrasounds and a smaller one to 13 weeks to the biggest time slot given to 13-week scans and a smaller one for 20 weeks because most of the problems are picked up at 13 weeks. And although it does still happen particularly with heart defects where a defect will be picked up at a 20-week scan, the most common phone call that I'd get about an anatomical problem within a baby would be after their 13-week scan. So if you're wondering what I'm talking about that they're looking at at a 13-week scan, well, obviously, number one, they're looking at measurements to see if the baby is the correct size for what you'd expect for the gestation that you'd already established. They can look at very, very specific structures, not only the brain but within the brain, a very, very complex look at the spinal column for any neural tube disorders. They can look at the heart, the kidneys, the bladder, all four limbs, all the fingers and toes, the nose, the eyes, the lips. I recently had a patient whose baby was detected to have a cleft lip and palate at the 13-week ultrasound. Can you imagine how small that baby is and they've picked up a cleft lip that early? So, you know, these are incredibly detailed ultrasounds and back when we used to do the nuchal skin fold on the back of the baby's neck to determine the Down syndrome risk, that was measured to the tenth of a millimetre. So we're talking about amazingly accurate scanning. Crazy. Is it bad to have no symptoms or for your symptoms to just all of a sudden stop? It's bad because a lot of people you know who have children will hate you Um, (laughs) and therefore the loss of friendships can be quite devastating. But other than that, it's like going to mother's group and saying, oh, no, I just put my baby in the cot at night and it sleeps till morning. And and they all smile at you and think, I'd like to rip out both your eyeballs and make you eat them. But, no, having no symptoms in early pregnancy is, is, is really, you know, that, that happens. It probably happens just as often as hyperemesis. <laughs> And we see a whole spectrum and and some people come along and say to me, you know, like if I hadn't had the ultrasound, I wouldn't even believe I was pregnant. (laughs) And a common time when people, I guess we're moving a little bit out of the first trimester, but we'll never have a second trimester episode because not much happens then. But Sometimes in that gap between the bad symptoms that might lead up to, say, 12 to 13 weeks and the onset of fetal movements, which usually occur somewhere between 18 and 20 weeks, there's this sort of no-man's land where people aren't sort of sure they're still pregnant and they'll often come along for a visit in between visits just to have the heartbeat checked because they sort of just feel this uncertainty that, 
am I still pregnant? You know, I don't feel pregnant anymore. I don't have a very big tummy to show for it and I don't have any movements. And you just have a look at the baby and 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 have an ultrasound and see the heartbeat and reassure them and then sure enough they come back at their next visit and they've started to feel some movements which you would refer to as sort of built-in reassurance. Every pregnancy I wanted to have a little book where any questions that I I had I'd like write down the answers so that for the next pregnancy I'd be so like yeah I just refer back to that oh it was this is how I felt and like know the answer but I never did it but I really wish I did do it because it is like you just you forget you think you're oh. not ever going to forget but you forget the next pregnancy that all those things that you once thought happen again it's or the sometimes same they with don't birth though and then it's the same with a newborn yeah. you go oh this wasn't that bad that last time and I remember after my pregnancy with Poppy I was like oh well it wasn't all that bad and Nick was like are you fucking <laughs> yeah. serious something yeah. happens you get like a it's so that you go again children. I know yeah. is it normal to have cramping during the first trimester yeah that's a good one this is Thanks. something throughout the pregnancy one thing I say to people at a lot of visits is you must remember that the uterus is entirely made out of muscle. That, that, that's just a great big muscle. So once you reach about 20 weeks pregnancy, it's probably the biggest muscle in your body. And as a muscle, it has contractile activity in it. So your uterus will be contracting throughout the pregnancy. So if we put a monitor on, even at 14 weeks, we will pick up contractile activity in the uterus. The difference between like Braxton Hicks and crampy pain in the uterus and period-like pain and, and uterine activity picked up on, on monitoring and contractions that are labour is that when the uterus is contracting and it's not labour, muscles are just firing off and twitching in every possible direction and therefore it doesn't generate any specific force in any specific direction. But when you have labour, the muscles of the uterus are contracting and creating like a cumulative force, like in physics you'd call like a vector force that's pushing the baby out. So when people say to me, how will I know the difference between the contractions I'm having throughout my pregnancy or in the third trimester, my Braxton Hicks contractions and labour, well, I think both of you would know, they'll just know. Did you know once we came to your house, Dad and I, to record an episode and on the way home I was having like quite severe Braxton Hicks, like I was pregnant, yeah. Braxton Hicks in the car. Dad did not even offer for us to pull over and for him to drive and he tells this story to Were everyone. Were you driving? I was driving and he, everyone goes, oh, did you pull over when she started having Braxton Hicks? And he goes, oh, I wasn't driving. She was driving. <laughs> You were going to do the roadside delivery. I was so looking forward to it. <laughs> I was so not. I don't even think we had a towel in the back of the car. Any tips for keeping it from your employer, especially Ooh. when needing to call in sick? Oh, here in Melbourne, no one sees their employer at the moment. So yes. they get up, have a quick month, come back to their desk and continue working. So ISO babies are very easy to conceal. Yeah, look, I mean, there are going to be times 
if you're in the age demographic and the marriage or partnership demographic where people are going to know you're either trying or you might be in early pregnancy. So it might be difficult. But I don't think being pregnant it would ever be something to be ashamed of. Yeah, I told my employers at about six weeks because I'd started in a new area of the hospital and I was so sick and I had to snack the whole time and we were doing ward rounds in the hospital and I'd had to run away and vomit. And I was like, if I don't tell yeah, them that I'm pregnant, yeah. they're going to think, well, they're going to think that I'm constantly hungover or like literally cannot stop eating. Like what is wrong with this chick? Does she <laughs> yeah, have worms? Yeah. I was just like so bad at my job and I – Never regretted for a second that I told them because, you know, like if it was a quiet afternoon, they would send me home. They they were so good. And I'm not saying everyone's like boss would be like that, but I think most people probably wouldn't regret it if they told their boss. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if you're missing work because of pregnancy symptoms, you know, I I don't – that's not something to feel any sense of negativity towards. I mean, if you've got an upper respiratory tract infection because you've been chugging on 40 darts a day, I mean, you know, maybe maybe you've contributed to getting unwell, but pregnancy is something that you can't predict how you're going to feel and I think all women should feel that they have a right to try and get pregnant and have a baby at whatever period in their lifespan they want to do it. Is there anything you can do to prevent a miscarriage? No, well, as I mentioned before, the majority of miscarriages are due to the fact that the pregnancy itself is fundamentally not normal. It has an abnormal chromosomal makeup, as I referred to as aneuploidy. So no matter what that person did, no matter what they ate, exercise, stress, work, sleeplessness, anything, that pregnancy is destined to miscarry. And I did mention to you that I I, I tend to test pregnancies for that now. And one of the main reasons for that is because it then gives you the opportunity at a subsequent visit to say, look, here's actual objective evidence for why your miscarriage occurred. So if anyone said to you it's because you don't have a healthy lifestyle or because you don't eat well or because you're too stressed or you exercise too much, you can say, no, it's because my pregnancy had an extra chromosome and it was always destined to miscarry. So I think the simple answer is as a doctor and as an obstetrician, we should always be encouraging people to have a healthy life physically, mentally, spiritually, that will always be better for them and it will always be better in the case of a pregnancy. But does your lifestyle cause you to have miscarriage? No. The only known lifestyle factor that would increase your risk of miscarriage is smoking. Right. And, you know, people have chosen 12 weeks as kind of like the time to announce. Now that you can get the NIPT or the Harmony test or whatever you want to call it at 10 weeks, if that comes back and that's all normal, is is that like a relatively good time to announce then? Yeah, I think the reason I think traditionally it was 13 weeks was because not only did you get your chromosomal reassurance that day but you also got your anatomical reassurance that day. So I think that you'd probably have grades of people that you would tell you're pregnant. So, for example, 
you probably tell your partner fairly on in proceedings. You might tell your family, you know, as soon as you knew and your closest friends. And then you gave a very good example of someone who sort of really had to tell work unusually Mm. early because it just wasn't possible to not tell them. And you can imagine if you were... If you were 10 weeks pregnant with hyperemesis and your job involved flying internationally every second week, well, then you're just not going to be able to do it. But in general, I, I think the closer the relationship you have with someone, the earlier you'd tell them. I've always wondered what professional sports women do. Well, that that increasingly is, is becoming a big complicated issue is that if you're a professional netballer, basketballer, AFL footballer or cricketer, do you get maternity leave and at what stage during your pregnancy should you stop playing the sport? So Mm. this is leading to some, you know, with amateur sport, of course, you just say, well, look, when you're pregnant, you stop playing and it has no sort of financial effect but if you're a totally professional sports woman then that can lead to some very difficult questions mm-hmm. and we're seeing some great examples now of people coming back to sport after having babies you know Serena Williams has come back to sport and in, in fact I think it was figured out that she was actually pregnant when she won the Australian Open yeah. a couple of years ago what a legend Vitova has come back after having a baby. So it's always good to see when people set that example that they can come back to being a professional sportswoman after having a baby. Mm. Some questions around safety. Yeah. Is caffeine safe in pregnancy? And it says here new research says no caffeine. Why would that be? Look, you're always going to read evidence because the world is full of publications and journals that are desperate to get studies put into them. And therefore, sometimes you really do need to look carefully at what publication that was and did the study involve a retrospective analysis of 50 people or was it a double-blinded prospective analysis of 50,000 people so I think it would be fair to say that you could have caffeine as long as it was at a sensible level in early pregnancy and that it shouldn't have an adverse effect on your pregnancy. And that you can tolerate the look, taste, smell and feeling yeah. of Apparently yeah. your mum was straight off it from the day of finding out she was pregnant and then on the day of delivery felt like a cup of coffee. It's just crazy how pregnancy can do that. Yeah, when the minute Poppy left my body, I was able to scull a bottle of water for the first time I because mm. I had been able to sip it at the most and I remember she came out and I felt like a big Ooh. leafy, like, crunchy salad and if you had come anywhere near me with anything the colour of green throughout the entire pregnancy, I would have thrown it at you and probably vomited. Is it common for for women to have a big night prior to knowing they're pregnant and do they need any form of extra testing? Uh, It's very common. I, I see a lot of patients in the first trimester who will share with me that they had alcohol binge in early pregnancy or cocaine or they've had Botox in early pregnancy. 
it, it tends in very early pregnancy to be an all or nothing phenomenon. In other words, the, the activity has led the person to miscarry or the pregnancy is fine. So if you're still pregnant, let's just forget it ever yeah. happened. Move on. Is fake tanning getting your and getting your hair dyed safe in early pregnancy? Certainly the hair dyeing, absolutely no question. Fake tanning does concern me a little bit because, as you know, the skin is the biggest organ in your body. We've had the biggest muscle, now we've got the biggest organ. And therefore, if you're applying fake tan, like if it's just to your face like Donald and not even covering your eyes, <laughs> um, it's probably okay. But if you're getting like full-on sprayed-on tan over your whole body on a regular basis, you would absorb a lot of that. And I will tell you a funny anecdote about this. I was once called on a weekend because a patient of mine had presented to the hospital, we'll, we'll just call it an emergency situation and it was on the weekend and I had to come in and do an emergency caesarean section on this lady. And I had noted throughout the pregnancy that this woman was orange and I realised that that was due to fake tan. This was in the days where it wasn't as common for people to wear fake tan like on a daily basis. It was more that if you were going to the races or a wedding and I opened her tummy up to do the uterus and noted that her uterus was orange. No. no. And that would have been 20 years ago. The baby was fine, all was well, and it wasn't orange. And But I just, I just thought that is really, really weird. And I was on, I didn't have another doctor helping me, so there was sort of no one I could share it with. But it was, it was sort of weird. So when people say to me, can I use fake tan? Look, if you're going to a wedding or you're going to a special occasion, first good news is you clearly don't live in Victoria. I think that's fine. <laughs> Do you know much about retinol? Can you use skincare that has retinol in it? Yeah, well, it's best avoided, yeah. Is it safe to have baths and saunas? Yeah, look, it is. The whole temperature and pregnancy concern, I believe, arose from someone who ran a marathon in Death Valley in like 45 oh. degree temperatures and had a baby that was missing a couple of limbs or something like that. And it was suggested that extremely high core temperatures led to the possibility of, of fetal abnormalities. It's important to remember that if you get into a hot bath, the bath is probably only 38 degrees which is probably only 0.5 of a degree warmer than you are, and mm. the baby is sitting inside your body. So if you were to take your temperature before, during, and after your bath, you probably only raised your body temperature by about half a degree and mm. then quickly dropped it because the bath loses its temperature very quickly. So I, I always encourage patients that, yes, it is fine to go to a spa or have a sauna or or go in those sort of hot steam rooms and things like that because I don't think it would really have a significant effect on your core temperature. And so it would be the same that you can do exercise that raises your temperature too. Yeah, absolutely. A Panadol and Nurofen safe in early pregnancy? I wouldn't recommend using Nurofen, not only during early pregnancy but also while you're trying to get pregnant because there has been some information to suggest that the use of anti-inflammatories 
reduces your fertility, particularly for people who take Nurofen in anticipation of a painful period. So like, you know, day 24 to 28 of a 28-day cycle. So I think the best analgesic to take in pregnancy is Panadol, and that's category A and perfectly safe. And can you continue to take prescribed medications if you are on them? Oh, we would strongly encourage people to take prescribed medications if they're on them. There are very, very few medications, particularly medications that people would be taking in early pregnancy that would be contraindicated. So when somebody comes along to me, let's just say, like Sophie, they were, I think, 26 when you conceived. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so let's say you're a 26-year-old. What would be the likely medications that a 26-year-old might be on? So number one would be asthma medication. Well, definitely they should continue asthma, and indeed it's if they were coming into spring or into a time of the year where they would be more likely to require it, definitely take, I would say, take it more aggressively. If they're on thyroid medication like thyroxin, I would not only get them to continue it, but I would get them to increase their dose by 50%. So a lot of women are on 100 micrograms a day. I'd get that to increase that to 150. The other very common medication that someone would be taking going into pregnancy would be antidepressants, and we'd be very happy for them to continue on with them. And there's, you know, enormous bodies of evidence to say that they're safe to take in pregnancy and indeed would be unsafe to stop. And the other one would be a diabetic. Well, clearly you don't stop diabetics medication because you'll kill them. You know, really the sorts of medications that people are on when they come into pregnancy are almost invariably the sort of medications you'd get them to continue. How high is the risk of listeriosis if you <laughs> eat soft cheeses, etc.? Salamis. Yeah, look, I've seen, I've been involved in obstetric care for 30 years now, and I've seen one case of listeriosis in my entire career. During my career, there's been a couple of outbreaks of listeriosis in Victoria, and on the occasions of outbreaks, it has always been associated with some sort of homemade or or like country market type cheese production, which is usually unpasteurized. So my main advice to people with regard to cheese and pregnancy is that if they're buying their cheese from a reputable vendor of cheese like Coles, and it's been properly refrigerated and it has an expiry date, it's extremely unlikely to have listeria in it. With regard to soft meats, if you know the deli where you bought those meats, not soft meats, you know, like cured meats, again, you know that it's been properly refrigerated and properly looked after. And then just the other thing to be careful of is reheating things particularly reheating something that you didn't cook in the first place. So another case of listeria I heard of was a case of a dim sim type thing that was reheated the next day and caused listeriosis. So really very, very basic food hygiene 
almost like you weren't trying to avoid listeria, you were just trying to avoid food poisoning would help you to avoid listeria. And another golden rule is anything that's hot kills listeria. So if you're worried about ham or salami or soft cheese and it's on a pizza that's, you know, been in a pizza oven, you're 100% safe. So pop down to Geordie's and have a nice pizza and you'll be perfectly well. Lincoln in the show notes. And I was explaining to someone the other day because I think there's this misconception that these foods do something different to pregnant women than they do to the rest of the population. It's not like if a pregnant woman eats raw fish, for example, mm. they have some kind of pregnant reaction to it. it no. it's, it's not it makes them sick differently to someone else. It's just obviously if you get sick, there's a greater risk because you're pregnant. Yeah. Absolutely yes. true. Yeah, we're nearly done. You haven't mentioned vibrators. You haven't mentioned vibrators. I thought we were being sponsored by vibrators. Yeah, oh, we already. Yours we is already, in the mail. Yours is in the mail. Can we and give a prize to my five hundredth follower? You want us to send her a vibrator? Yeah. Okay. If you send us her Instagram handle, we'll see what we can do. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your words of wisdom with us today. Oh, can't we do some more? No, not today, but we can do it. We'll do our next one can be on the second and third com- trimester combined because, as you said, yeah. the second trimester, not a great Record deal. Record this. Record this. I'm really excited to tell you guys that I've organised for an embryologist to come on beyond the bump. And while I'm... I'm excited about it is that embryology is science and it's the science behind IVF and the most important thing for any of your listeners who have either had IVF treatment in the past or are contemplating IVF pregnancy or IVF treatment is that the science is what determines whether you'll get pregnant. It's the quality of the lab. It's the quality of the embryologists. It's the quality of the science they produce. And here I have a friend who's a young woman who's a professor of embryology who I really think should be an inspiration to all women out there, particularly women who've gone to university and studied science. And and here's a person who's worked their way up not only through the corporate world of working for one of the biggest IVF groups in Australia, but also in the scientific community to be a professor. She's an inspiration. She's young. She's incredibly intelligent. She's really funny. And I, I think if if I can talk her into coming on the show, you might think on the face value of it, oh, embryology and science is a bit boring, but it isn't at all. that To understand the truth behind fertilisation and embryo development and embryo biopsy and how that all developed is incredibly fascinating and I'm sure your viewers would love it. We would love love to speak to her. But thank you so much, Dr. Timmy, for coming on and speaking to us all about the first trimester. Jade and I got through it relatively unscathed talking about it this time. Can't say the same about experiencing it. And we'll speak to you very soon about our next topic. Love you, Timmy. Love your work. Yes, I'm great. I hope to get to 0.6K soon. (laughs) Bye. I'm feeling used. I know. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. 
If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.